The dress code was legendary. In the early days of IBM, that is computers, uh, their salesmen were to wear dark suits, saleswomen, dress. And one employee remembers his first day of work there in 1978. And in order to look the part of the IBM man, he dressed to impress. So he donned his dark suit, he wore what he called a sincere tie, he even put on his Gucci loafers. But even still, his boss was not impressed. <laughs> and the boss was so much not impressed that he sent the employee home with a mission to shop for wingtips. His Gucci loafers weren't cutting it, so he, he asked him, you know, why are you wearing your bathroom, bathroom slippers to work? Well, times have obviously changed, and so has the look of IBM. These days, they are striving to look much cooler. Uh, some may say, some of you all may say, they're constantly trying to look as cool as Apple. But nevertheless, IBM expects its employees, as representatives, to communicate the ethos and to uphold the name of the company, even in dress. Well, did you know that in the same way, we Christians too are representatives, of course not of a company, or merely as the moral right, but as representatives of God. And our passage doesn't talk about any sort of actual dress code, though we know it is modesty, we're to put on that, certainly. But we do see certain things that we, as representatives of God, God the Father, uh, we are to put on, as in, you know, the basic stuff of clothing, let's say, the clothing of the heart. So go ahead and turn to your Bibles in Colossians chapter 3. We're going to continue our study here again. This is actually part two of uh, what we began last week. And as you guys turn there, as you many of you know, Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul, written to a church... Uh, who unfortunately had had some false teachers rise up in their midst and were teaching them, saying, oh, look, you may claim to have the full life in Jesus, but really you don't. What you need to do is add on all these other things on top of your worship, and then you have the full worship. And so Paul writes here, clarifying for them, no, look, you don't need to add those things. Let me tell you what the true gospel is, who the supreme Christ is and what he has done, but let me also tell you what the basics of a godly life are. Colossians 3 verses 12 to 17 and actually I'll just go ahead and uh, read from 5 to 17 just so we can catch up and get the context of where we were beginning from last week. He says there, put to death, this is verse 5 of chapter 3, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you, in these two, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, Free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, 
meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, as we continue on from last week, let me go ahead and restate the main point really of this whole section here. It is this, the Christian life is a life of new direction where we leave behind the old self and put on the new self. The Christian life is a life of new direction where we leave behind the old self and put on the new self. And so today we look at what it means to put on this new self. And if you're taking notes, the outline for today comes in four points. And really the Christian is to be marked by, first, putting on the attributes of Christ. Putting on the attributes of Christ. The second one is ruled by the peace of Christ. The third is dwelling with the word of Christ. And fourth is being thankful for salvation in Christ. As we come to those points, I'll go ahead and repeat it if you're taking notes there. But before we get to the outline, let me say that it's important to remember that the Christian life is not primarily about morals. We made this point last week. I'll go ahead and make it again. It's not primarily about morals. Though clearly, as today's passage shows and as last week's passage showed... Um, the, it, 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 Christianity involves living in a certain way. So the goal of the Christian life is to honor and glorify our great God and Creator. That's the ultimate goal here. That's what's primary. It isn't merely morals. It's honoring and glorifying our great God and Creator. Go ahead and turn to chapter 1, verse 10. And you see that there. Paul encourages the Christians by encouraging them to live a godly life. And he prays that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So that really is what starts off the main main push for the book. This is what I want you Christians to do, he says. And then go ahead and turn turn to chapter 3, verse 17. This is the last verse in our passage today. Here again, Paul states this grand goal of life. He says, whatever you do, in word or work or deed, he says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So here we see this exaltation of this Jesus Christ, the supreme, the preeminent one. And so for the truly born again Christian, that is those who have turned from their sin and towards this magnificent gracious Savior, we live for God. We are to live to exalt his great name. And another great verse, if you want to write it down and then study it later, it comes from 2 Corinthians 5.15. Now here says the gospel works out in such a way where those sinners have sinned against their creator and deserve punishment for our sins legitimately. Here God gives his own son to die in our place, bearing our wrath. So that those, quote, who live that is you guys, might no longer live for yourself, but for him who for their sake, who for your sake 
died, and was raised. So there you see there again, uh, this great grand goal. We are to live not for ourselves, but for him, for God, for the Savior, the preeminent one. So don't think that morals for the Christian is king. And we've all simply signed up to living according to them, as if they rule or they say. So when we as Christians talk about morals in the Christian church, we talk about the ways, really, that Christ himself lives and is. It's his character and his ways. It's the stuff, really, the morals. It's the stuff that flows out of his very character. And when we obey them, this is really what it means to love him. right? When we love who he is and what he does, so we too are walking in the same ways because we appreciate so much his character and his ways. And then as his children, we act in the same ways. We love the same things. So the Christian strives to follow after Jesus because he is indeed our Savior who saves us. Right In the previous chapter, we saw that there's a decisive break, a decisive salvation for those whom he has saved and died for. He draws them out of darkness and brings them into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And so that king rules. Even in this body, even right now, he rules over us. So, point number one, putting on the attributes of Christ. That's the first way in which, at least this passage speaks about what the Christians are to be marked by. Last week, again, we looked at what the Christians put off. You see that list there in uh, verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He goes on and speaks about lying. He says, put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. So those are the stuff, that's the stuff that we are to put off. And this week we look at what we are to put on. Again, as basic and fundamental as, put, as what you put on when you get up in the morning before you leave the house, this here is the fundamental stuff that we are as Christians, God's children, to put on really all the time, not only when we leave the so-called house of, uh, leave our, our houses in the morning. You can think about it this way. The Father's children resemble the Father. And for the Christian who's already saved, already freed from sin, already uh, made a decisive break from all of these things, though we are to continually put them to death, we bear the characteristics of the very Savior in character and quality and deed insofar as it is possible. The family aspect is reflected there in verse 12. Go ahead and look there. He says there, put on, it's an imperative, the command, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved so there you get a little bit of that, 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 uh, this fatherly aspect of God setting his love upon a people and adopting them, just like he did in the Old Testament. God saw Israel, the Hebrew people, and he adopted them and he sets his love upon them. They were his chosen ones and called in their holiness, really the holiness of God, to display his character to the world. And how they are to display his character to the world is they are supposed to pursue his very own holiness and display it to the nations. And just as he did that in the OT, so he is doing that now in the New Testament church. God called his church, and us too, according to this passage, to be holy. And so he reminds them at 3 verse 10, he says, your new self, which you have already put on, okay, your new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
You see that there? So anything that you are to put on, this really is, is in the image of the Creator. It's His holiness. It is His attributes. I mean, how exciting is it for, for us as Christians? And for us even to look across the pew at other Christians and know that God is in the process right now of renewing you. He already says that the people that he died for and the people who have repented and believed are already new creations. And now he's just doing that good work, that steady, which might seem slow, but that steady and oftentimes difficult work of growing you. You can imagine, you know, that uh, where you take a picture every so often of, let's say, a newly planted seed in some great soil. And every so often, every week, you might take another picture of where that, of how exactly that plant is growing. And then after, let's say, a whole year of growing and blossoming, and then maybe losing its flowers, and then growing new ones and growing larger. I mean, if you just take all this picture and then push play, and then speed it up, you see really over the course of time what God is doing with us as so-called plants, growing us, renewing us into the very beautiful image that He is, telling us, put on my own characteristics, put on my holiness. So what exactly are we to put on there? He says, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now keep in mind, these are not just morals here, okay? These are the very characteristics of God that he calls you to put on. So a compassionate heart, again in 2 Corinthians 1.3, God is called the Father of mercies. This compassionate heart can also be translated a merciful heart. Meaning, if God is the father of mercies, then mercy's very origin is found in God. And so he calls you to put that on. And then you have their kindness, also translated goodness, which really speaks about the abundance of God's goodness that he has towards his covenant people. He sets his love upon a people. This is his kindness. And uh, Psalm 25, verse 7, there the psalmist pleads with God. And he says, do not remember my sin. And then he gives the reason, right? He pleads with God not to remember my sins, something we all should be doing. Here's the reason. It's not because, oh, I got it all together. But it's because it says, for you are good. So he calls us to put on that kindness. And then he moves on there, humility. And there we can think of Christ as he humbles himself, even to the point of death, as he takes on flesh. He dies on the cross. You can think of Matthew eleven twenty nine, where Jesus says he is meek and lowly in heart. And then that same verse, Matthew eleven twenty nine, also speaks of not only his lowliness, but also his meekness, his gentleness, his humility. And then you have patience, long-suffering. So here you get the idea that in annoyance or being sinned against, here you're able to put up with it. This, is, this marks God. He is long-suffering. And Paul says that God showed his, his patience with Paul himself as the chief of sinners. Waiting, even though he persecuted the church. He, she, God was long-suffering, waiting to save him. So here, these, this is all God. This is all Christ, and we are to put them on. You know, as we seek to apply this to our lives... It's funny how we love it when Christ shows these very things to us, don't we? We appreciate being the recipients of a compassionate heart. 
someone's kindness, someone's meekness, someone's patience. But I'm guessing that many of us aren't pining after these qualities, thinking we've struck gold, let's say, when we find it in ourselves or in other people. I mean, leadership books, generally speaking, uh, aren't flying off the shelves because they're talking about this kind of stuff. I mean, if you think about your own leadership, for example, whether it's leadership in the home, leadership amongst your peers, leadership in your field of study, leadership uh, in your company, you know, you're not really thinking, what I value most of all, the gold stuff of leadership, is this stuff. You're thinking leading thousands of people, you're thinking leading massive company, making lots of money, being able to tell people what to do and have them do it, and getting people to yes, and getting people to do what you want them to do. As opposed to really a giving of yourself here. I mean, that's what's implied, isn't it? This is all a giving of oneself, a compassionate heart towards other people. Kindness towards others, humility before other people, putting others before yourself. A meekness where you have strength in control as opposed to a dominating, tyrannical strength. You have patience and long-suffering against other people. Those of you who think you might want a spouse one day, do you find yourself valuing a compassionate heart over, let's say, height, kindness, over bulging biceps, humility, over the sharing of the same hobbies, meekness, over the color of their skin or the culture that they come from. And, and already there, you should feel some sort of strange tension, thinking like, oh yeah, you know what? I do want a guy who's like six foot two, and I'm looking for that more than a, a, a four foot ten guy who has a big compassion and heart, right? You should feel that. It's kind of strange there. If you yourself love being the recipient of these attributes, but are struggling really to love the attributes because... They resemble the Lord's same heart. You know, I think we ought to check and wonder if we really love the same attributes or even find them valuable to the degree that God does. I mean, Jesus himself, you know, he had the appearance where no one would actually follow him, meaning that he probably was not good looking. David himself, for example, was the shorter of among his brothers. But yet, you know, the Lord is valuing the inner things. So he calls us to put on the inner things. These are the very things that God himself is marked by. Here in, in telling us what we are to put on, you know, God just, uh, he doesn't just tell us to grow in an individualistic sense here. But growing as individuals means we have a concern about growing as a community. Interesting, isn't it? He doesn't tell us not to grow as individuals only, but he says if you are growing in individuals properly and in godliness, we are supposed to be growing as a community. So God wants us to put on these attributes of quality with eyes towards strengthening gospel community. He wants us to don these attributes of quality with eyes towards strengthening gospel community. In other words, to grow in the qualities of godliness inherently involves growing in community. That others would receive the blessings of your godliness. It isn't receive in order, in order to, to only take. Here it is to receive in order to give. 
receive in order to give here. So if your mind of godliness is thinking, yes, I am going to excel in kindness and meekness and patience and humility and gentleness and all of these things, apart from being able to show them towards the Christian church, then we have a a pretty poor understanding here of what these qualities are actually meant to do in the life of the Christian. Look there in verse 13. Possessing these attributes is to lead to certain actions in community. What are the actions? It is bearing and forgiving. Bearing and forgiving. So it's like these attributes are welling up. You're growing in these things in order that you might bear and forgive. I mean, how instructive is it that Paul here has these two actions in mind, right? The other ones are qualities. These here, now they take on action. They take on form. They take on legs. These are the attributes that we all are to move towards as we strive to put on these things, the very things of God. And it's interesting here that Paul actually mentions um, what we are going to face here. If one has a complaint against another, there it says. It's like you put on these things, bearing and forgiving, if one has a complaint against another. I mean, this sets our expectations for the Christian life, doesn't it? Christian community. So, for example, a practical thing here is if you know me long enough, you're going to have a complaint against me. It is just that simple. If you know the person in the pew next to you, you are going to have a complaint against that person. So make no mistake, we are in the company of sinners, all of us. And it'll be a temptation, again, to let these complaints or faults or sins break up the body if we value the worldly stuff and not the stuff of God. We're going to let the the complaints we have, our faults and sins, tear apart this very body. And maybe some of you guys are experiencing that right now because you value something else other than what God values. So for application, I wonder how good you are at forbearing with other sinners and forgiving them of their sins. You know, I think some in the Colossian church would be able to identify with you if you find these things being tested. They were in the danger of letting certain faults and sins and offenses tear apart the church. Uh, If you aren't familiar with Paul's letter to Philemon, let me summarize it to you. Philemon was a man in the Colossian church. And he had a servant named Onesimus. And Onesimus was not a believer when he was serving Philemon underneath his household. And what had happened is that Onesimus seems to have stolen something from his master and then he just took off to Rome. And in Rome there was a large population of slaves, so there you know, Onesimus is finding common, common ground with some of those folks. And while in Rome, somehow in the providence of God, he runs into Paul of all people, is converted, and then Paul says, look, you need to go back and make good with your master, Philemon. And so it's very likely that Philemon, or sorry, Onesimus, the former slave, or the the still slave, but former pagan, now turned Christian, he is the one going back from Paul with the letters of Philemon and Colossians in hand. So he goes back to his master whom he had sinned against. I mean, just imagine if a thief stole from you. You probably think of some sort of example when somebody stole from you and this guy who was your friend maybe or someone you cared for, you know, they stole from you, they ran off and then now he returns to you. You just imagine seeing him come back 
And your, your, your forbearance is already being tested. Your forgiveness is already being tested because they stole something valuable from you. You see how forbearance and forgiveness was necessary for the Colossian church. But not only that, though, I mean, in Philemon there, Paul says, look, I want you to receive him no longer as a slave, but as a brother. A brother. And then here in verse, three, in verse 11 of chapter 3, he says, here, that is the church, guys. There is not Greek. There is not Jew. There is not circumcised. There is not uh, uncircumcised. Barbarian or Scythian. And there the Scythians were kind of known as like the lowest slaves. And then he says, or slave or free. But Christ is all. He is everything. He is the greatest. And he is in all, including the very people who sinned against you that say that they are your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. He says, Paul says to this whole entire church, you know, and you know, these letters were supposed to be read out in public. So imagine if we are the Colossian church. And uh, Jared, for example, is Onesimus, and he comes back with the letters. I'm supposed to read these out out loud. Everybody knows that he took off and he, and he ran away and that he stole from me. And now he comes back and I'm reading this letter out loud. There is no slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. That's supposed to affect our relationship here. And so you see how difficult it must have been and probably how difficult it is for you at certain times to forbear and also forgive. Our temptation, think of where when you have uh, bared with somebody. The temptation to think about this attribute of forbearance is to think that it's somehow just sort of gritting your teeth and getting through whatever it is that's bothering you. Or even this person's existence. And that's not biblical forbearance. One translation puts it this way. Making allowance for faults. That's very different than gritting your teeth and enduring someone's existence or something that ticks, ticks you off about this person. Here this is making allowance. This is seeing somebody and saying, there's an allowance of sin because he is a sinner. There's allowance of faults because we are all faulty. I mean, how good are you at opening up the door wide for the allowance of faults? And here, I'm not, Paul's not talking about being a doormat. Paul's not talking about tolerating sin by maybe enabling them or never calling them out. That's not what Paul says here. Paul calls people out throughout his letters, but that's not what biblical forbearance is. A biblical forbearance basically is informed by the fact that you are not at the center of the universe. A biblical forbearance involves the, the fact that you are not at the center of the universe. And what I mean by that is forbearance takes into consideration the fact that people are different from you. That people might be a little bit more quirky than you in certain areas. That they might have different habits than you do. That maybe they grew up in a different culture than you did. And it's a forbearance that understands that we all struggle with sin in our own unique ways. And yet for the genuine Christian, Christ is still working on every single one of us in his own time, sanctifying us, changing us into the image of himself. Right? That kind of forbearance makes a lot of allowances for sinful people. It's just kind of like a, a biblical knowledge of what sin is. Right? We have to make allowances for other people. 
It's a forbearance undergirded by all of the attributes that were mentioned before. So think about meekness or gentleness, which really is a posture that considers others. So are you good at that when you're sinned against you? Are you quick to consider this person? Kind of like what we were talking about in the earlier hour here, where we are experts in the strengths of other people. Let's consider their strengths as opposed to reacting regarding their faults. Let's consider their background, their personalities, the fact that they are sinful, the fact that they grew up in uh, different cultures than you did. How we all struggle in our own unique ways and how we too need to be suffered with at times. This forbearance too is also a posture which is able to waive your rights for others. Right? It, it not only considers others, but it's able to waive your rights for other people. Are you good at that? You know, it, it, when you are offended to know, oh, I have every right to be offended, really. But I'm just going to lay those down for the sake of love. I'm just going to put those down for the benefit of the body, for unity, which he's going to get to. Then he goes further. It's not only forbearance, it's also forgiveness. And this word translated forgiveness is not just used to describe the act of forgiving or merely offering a pardon, but it carries with it a readiness to forgive. It's a posture of graciousness from which forgiveness flows. Uh, So, for example, there are other examples where uh, this is used as specific sins or canceling a debt. But the the same word is used, let's say, in in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all... How will he not also with him graciously give, the same thing, graciously give us all things? It's like the Father is ready to lavish all of this giving upon other people who don't deserve it. And so that's what Paul calls us to. To not only forbear to consider others and to waive our rights and be ready to do these things, but to be ready to forgive, to adopt a posture of this gracious giving. I want to give this to you to show you once again what our Father is really like. How often, how often are we willing to claim our rights in the midst of an offense as opposed to lay those down and say, let me show you a little bit more of the Father's love. Eager to do that. Take a posture, ready to give, ready to forgive. In effort to live with other Christians and do life with other Christians, we must seek something greater than our own rights. We must seek something more, worth more than righting genuine wrongs committed against you or supposed wrongs committed against you. It requires that you find something greater than being treated the way you ought to be treated or think you ought to be treated. I mean, just imagine if Jesus himself lived for such inferior things. Imagine if Jesus wanted everyone to know and at all the time and at all time what his rights were as the king of the universe. I mean, would there even be an incarnation? If he was always always grasping after that thing that he knew he deserved, would he even lay it down and give it up? Imagine if he lived to in order to immediately right every wrong committed against them. Would there even be a chance of salvation? Ever be a chance of forgiveness? Ever be a chance of compassion? Imagine if he walked around demanding that everyone treated him the way he ought to be treated. 
And he really is the only one who could claim that he ought to be treated in a certain way as he is God. We would know no gospel. He would have never condescended to take on flesh, to endure all of those wrongs committed against him in order to save. He would have never suffered at the hands of sinners in order to save them if he did not lay down his rights and consider others. Instead, what did he find more valuable? He found the reconciliation of sinners to the Father more valuable. The plan of God more valuable. And so he happily laid those things down and endured the cross. And so we too ought to desire this reconciliation among God's people, which stems from forgiveness from God. Just as Christ forgave us, so we too are to forgive. Did you see that? That's the reason why we are to forgive there in verse 13. Just as we have been forgiven, so we are to forgive. Just as we have received this compassionate heart, this merciful heart towards us, so we are to share that with other people. Just as we have found Christ to be meek and humble and gentle, so we are to show that to other people. You know, in the song that we sung, Jesus, Thank You, it talks about how His love is endless, His forgiveness and mercies are endless. Do you know that part of the way that we are to know this endlessness or this endless forgiveness is in the church as well? It is certainly to know that we, have forgi- we are forgiven by God all the time, but it's also to know this forgiveness here in the church, and that's part of the way in which we are to know this endless forgiveness, and that should really excite us at the opportunity to do that. The same posture that Christ had towards us, we are to have towards others. You look at this summary posture there in verse 14. He says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So there you see what underpins Oh, the underpinnings of this forbearance, this forgiveness, and all of these attributes. It is the crowning attribute of love. Above all these things, put on this thing which is like the cement of the building. Love. It binds everything. That is the church in perfect harmony. And this makes sense, right? If we love others, we're going to want them to know the Father's love, the Father's compassionate heart, His gentleness, His meekness, His humility, His long-suffering... And so we clothe ourselves in these very things. And we lay down our rights in order to show Jesus Christ's love. Well, that's point number one. A Christian life is a life marked by putting on the attributes of Christ. And that strengthens us as a community. And just, if you're wondering if every point is going to be, you know, 30 minutes long, no, then you get very short from here on out. (laughs) Uh, Point number two, what is the Christian life to be marked by? And the Christian church to be marked by, it is that we are to be ruled by the peace of Christ. We are ruled by the peace of Christ. Here it says that a peace of Christ must must have its way if we are to move towards others in forbearance and forgiveness. This is verse 15. This is, after all, the realm in which the entire church is called into. Interesting, right? He delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved Son which is ruled by peace, the peace of Jesus Christ. 
It's not surprising to see that while peace is the realm in which Christians are called into, the peace of Christ is also a gift. So John 14, 27 reads, My peace I give to you, my peace I leave to you. So it is a gift, so it is a realm. We could even call it a code by which this kingdom is run or the law that the citizens submit to. And Paul says, I want that to rule amongst you. How do you let the peace of Christ rule in your relationships here in this church? You know, he is not talking about avoiding conflict. That is not what it means to let peace rule. Again, he's talking about laying down rights and your preferences as you move towards other people in love and forgiveness in the midst of conflict. You guys know the church covenant that we propose? I don't know if you've been looking at it. Uh, it says there that when we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And that just comes straight out of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. So this covenant that we are going to be voting on there, and that many churches have, this Bible verse here, suppose it says there that we ought to pray for this thing, this unity of the Spirit there, in the bond of peace. And see, that thing rule. You know, as I, as I seek reconciliation, we should be asking, as I go into the conversation of someone that you need to reconcile with, if I go into the relationship, am I letting the peace of Christ reign so that people know that what rules me is the peace of God as opposed to self-preservation? Is that how you enter into settling a conflict? Are you claiming your rights or are you thinking, I need to let the law of the kingdom really let it play itself out in the way that I settle things here? This is a beautiful thing to anticipate. That Christ's peace would reign over all of us in every single thing we do and with everyone we forbear and every sin committed against us. Our response towards these things should be submission to the peace of Jesus Christ. Again, to summarize this for, thus far, the attributes of Christ are what we are to put on as point number one. Point number two, the peace of Christ is what is to rule this very body here. Number three... The word of Christ is to dwell with us. We are supposed to be dwelling with the word of Christ. This is the third point, the third imperative found in our passage. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So this here is a corrective to the false teachers, right? They claim through their own worldly wisdom and with their own worldly words that they possess the secret to living the full life. And it's in this verse that we are reminded that the word of Jesus Christ is what we are to listen to and obey. And the word plays a huge part here in this letter. So look at 1.5. It says there, you heard before in the word of truth, that is the gospel, not according to those false teachers, but the gospel, you heard it. In 125, Paul makes it clear that uh, it is his God-given call to make the word of God fully known. He's supposed to explain it to everybody and its meaning. And then here he calls it to let it continue to live amongst you. Which results, note there, according to the verse, in teaching and admonishing. Admonishing as in warning or counseling. But how are they to teach and admonish? It says there the manner is in all wisdom. So basically he's talking about doing so 
uh, with tact. He's supposed to go about doing this intact. But he also says it's by the means of singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That is how they are to let the word of Christ dwell, at least here in this passage. Elsewhere, we see that the word of Christ is supposed to be amongst us in different ways. Here, though, it says specifically in singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. How interesting is it that the people of God who don the attributes of God, who are ruled by the peace of God, who dwell with the word, are to be marked by the singing of his praises. That's just interesting, isn't it? Of all the things that a community might so-called put on here, the singing of God's praises is to be one of them. What does he mean by psalms? Uh, Here, this is a word that Luke uses, for example, to refer to the book of Psalms, or to the Psalms found in the book of Psalms. Uh, Though a major commentator notes that this word came to be used to describe more widely of singing a praise to God. He says there a hymn is defined as a festive hymn of praise. And he says there a song. Uh, These are songs in which God's acts and his character are praised and glorified. So many of the songs in Revelation are these types of songs, where many of them also are called new songs. They're not just old songs, but they're new songs. And these three terms together, they describe the full range of singing which the Spirit prompts, as one says. So we as a people of God are to be marked by singing the praises of God. Again, there we're directed to the one to whom all glory and majesty should be pointed, right? We put on these things as people of God in order to display his personality, his character. And then we're supposed to show this towards other people. His body, which all goes to reflect the head, that is Jesus Christ. And here it is his word. And if his word is living amongst us here, we sing his praises back to him. You know, as we consider our own singing, I think we should be encouraged. Even those of you who know you sing off-tune, you too should be encouraged. I mean, I know people in this congregation who when work or something takes them away from the gathering, they actually miss the singing of the church. That's a good sign. And the reason is because many of you are actually trying to sing. And so I know people who are encouraged big time by you who sing, okay? So let me encourage you to keep on doing it. I mean, people have come up to me and said, you know, I'm, uh, there's this one gentleman who sings, and this is where he sings, and this is this girl who sings loudly. Wow, she is a real encouragement. People have come up to me in this church and told me that about some of you. Be encouraged. We want to be a church who sings as if we really are ascribing to God his worth. And we want to do that vocally with our vocal cords that God himself has given us. Understanding that this is one reason why God tells us to gather, to ascribe to him his worth and praise as a corporate body. You realize that corporate singing is something you cannot do on your own? And so when he calls us to gather, he calls us to gather and to sing. It's a beautiful thing. This is why we try hard to not privatize your worship on Sundays or individualize them. 
So what that means is we're going to be trying hard to make sure that our instrumentation, for example, doesn't drown out your vocal singing. Right? Because we actually want to be hearing, according to this passage, we ought to be singing these truths to one another. And that teaches us. And that admonishes us even. And it really does. Like if I'm looking over here and I see somebody else singing, I think, man, my spirit might not be ready to worship now, but I thank God for that brother or sister's example. And when he sings it, if he's singing in the spirit, he actually means it. And that's a proclamation there. God sort of, or this person by the spirit sending out this proclamation of truth, just letting it fly and letting it sit in the air, in the atmosphere. And this is going on between, you know, 50 of us here, just letting them go out. You know, these truths there that, that no one can bring down because they are true. Because they are God's truth. And so we, as if we, we see them go out and know that those truths stand. It's a beautiful thing. We are to be edifying one another through the public singing. How exciting is that? You know, others in history have been concerned about congregational singing. John Wesley, the great 18th century hymn writer, he gave out rules for singing. I've mentioned them before, but uh, I'll say them again here. And let me encourage you to take notes. First, sing all. That is everyone. Everybody sing. Even you who don't know how to sing, sing. See that you join with the congregation. This is what he says. See that you join with the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a slight degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. In other words, even if you're sick, you can still sing to God's glory. You might not be able to use a full voice, but there you can still sing all, joining with the congregation. Second, sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing, he says, as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. Now, some of you all, this might describe you guys, singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. Now, I don't have people in mind, but you know, you might identify with this. Maybe you're always a passive observer of other people launching out these truth claims and you feel them in your heart here. But here, John Wesley says, you sing with good courage. Third, sing modestly. Do not bawl as to be heard above or distinct from the rest of the congregation, that you may not destroy the harmony but strive to unite your voices together so as to make one clear, melodious sound. Now, when he says don't sing distinctly, he's not saying don't sing in harmony. He says harmony is fine there. Just imagine in heaven how massive the harmony will be. That's not what he's saying here. One example is this. I used to go to church where a guy was a trained opera singer. And, uh, you know, it seems like at every single... At the end of every single verse of every single hymn, he would hold out that note in his fantastic, beautiful voice, just for like an extra half note. And people around me would be wondering, what are his motivations for doing that? They wouldn't say, because, you know, they don't know. I mean, maybe in opera training, that's what you do. I don't know. Um, But there, you know, if that that, uh, instant happens, let's say if I'm holding out a note just so... And it seems like I might want to do that just so I might be heard more than everybody else. It's up to you guys, you know, my good, trusting, loving friends, to come and address that with me. Uh, There we should be mindful. We want to sing modestly, though still, with courage and lustily. The fourth thing, he says, sing in time. 
Whatever time is sung, be sure to keep with it. Do not run before nor stay behind it, but attend closely to the leading voices and to move therewith as exactly as you can, right? As you can do so. Just try and stay in time. Fifth, above all, this is the most important, sing spiritually. Sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing Him more than yourself or any other creature. In order to do this, attend strictly to the sense of what you sing and see that your heart is not carried away with the sound, but offered to God continually. So shall your singing be such as the Lord will approve of here and reward when He cometh in the clouds of heaven. There's a lot of good stuff there. If you're singing with a sense of the stuff, you're, you're mindful of the words that you're singing, right? And he says there, don't get carried away with the sound. Or let's say you're trying to sing harmony. Don't get carried away at your very act of singing harmony. Or up here, if we're singing a fast song, I mean, you know how easy it is to get a group of people clapping just because the music is fast? That's not praise to God. The music can go fast and you can clap all you want. That's not praise to God. But if you do want to clap, let yourself clap because of the contents of what you're singing. I've been in some churches where you can really feel that the reason why they clap is just because of the tempo. And I'm not so convinced that they're clapping because of the content. But I've been at some churches where they might be singing. Let's say if you're talking, talking about uh, Jesus, thank you, and, and you hit some sort, of, some sort of aspect or content where it moves your heart to rejoice... You ought to, if you feel so moved, you can and feel the freedom to clap at that. Because the act of clapping itself, you are wanting to give glory, in this case, in the act of clapping, we want to give glory to God and let that be driven by content, not merely tempo or something like that. So what does this mean for us as we seek to learn new songs as a body? Sometimes we might introduce some songs that uh, might feel a little country. We did this a couple months ago. Interesting song. Um, but I'm really encouraged that even in the midst of such a song like that, which some have even said was hillbilly-ish, uh, the congregation is still singing. And you know why that's so encouraging to me? It's because, let's just say that hillbillies wrote this song, I don't know, a few hundred years ago. It's so encouraging that we today in the 21st century can say, yes, I might sing with them using the same words, even though they lived 300 years ago and were from a vastly different culture than me. I lay down my preferences in order to unite with them, though they have died and gone before, because of the same content. I mean, how encouraging is that? Whether we are singing the most stiff hymn that could possibly be sung, I don't know what that is, or a song like this, or a modern praise chorus. We want to be content-based and really be driven by the very words of God. And that is how the word of God can dwell amongst us. Teaching and admonishing uh, by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So I think you guys should genuinely be encouraged here. If there is a new song, face it with great courage. And let's be driven by the content of the song. Did you know how the... How the uh, passage calls us to sing. This is the fourth and final point and the conclusion. It tells us to sing thankfully. Christian life is a life that is thankful for Christ. Thankfulness plays a big part of this book. 
I mean, even in our section, thankfulness shows up in verse 15, 16, and 17. It's a command, an imperative. Be thankful, he says. He goes on, singing with thanksgiving in everything we do to the name of Jesus Christ. Right? The big, great, grand goal. We do all of these things with thanksgiving. And that thanksgiving is to mark us as individuals and as a community. And this thanksgiving is to be salted generously in our congregation. Right? If we know that God is compassionate towards us in His Son, who died on the cross for sins, we ought to be thankful. And in that, He forgives us. And so when there is conflict and we move towards each other in conflict, we should be doing so, letting the peace of Christ reign over us, being thankful that we have something that we don't deserve. And we should be giving that freely, taking a posture of grace towards other people, being thankful and letting that show even in the ways that we settle our disputes. I mean, who would not be, right? If Jesus Christ has made this decisive break, where he has saved us from judgment and wrath, where he has drawn us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. So we strive to be marked by this light. We strive to be marked by the Father, doing everything in word or work or deed in the name of our Savior. I wonder if you're visiting with us as a Christian and you know yourself to struggle with this peace, forbearance, forgiveness. You know, the Bible says that you can know this forgiveness in giving it, but primarily in knowing it from God if you look to the cross. If you repent of your sins and trust in Him, you know full and free forgiveness and so then you are able to give that same forgiveness because of what Jesus Christ has done. For the Christian, there is no dress code apart from modesty. But for the heart, God dresses. We are to be marked by the stuff of heaven, the stuff of God himself, his very own attributes insofar as we are humanly able to. And so we represent the Father, right? This is an exciting thing. As you look across the pew and you see your friends you ought to be delighting, eagerly waiting, even as you need to settle some conflict with them or they need to settle it with you. We ought to be eagerly waiting for us to blossom as Christians over the years and over the decades into, into a community where peace and love are the cement of the building. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that this task of putting off and putting on is not finally dependent on us. Because if it were, we know that we couldn't do it. We would fail miserably at these things. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have indeed made that decisive break. You have indeed given us your spirit. You have indeed caused us to walk in your ways. You've caused us to behold the magnificence and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit will be working in us to continue to do all these things. To behold this great and glorious Savior who saved us. And so, Lord, we praise you as the supreme one, the preeminent one, the one through whom everything was made, and the one for whom everything was made, the one who was before all things, and the one to whom everything is going. Father, we pray that in our body we would magnify you as our great and glorious Redeemer. Lord, cause us, help us by your Spirit 
to put on the very stuff of heaven, all the stuff that is marked by you. We pray, Lord, that we would be leaning into heaven, though we live here on this earth. In your name we pray. Amen.